From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We all know, thanks to the 2009 financial crisis, that rich people can screw up in a way that affects a lot of non-rich people. And that's what Jennifer Taub writes about. She's a law professor at Western New England University in a book called Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime. So you've been waiting 11 years to write this, huh? I had just finished my first book. It was called Other People's Houses. And I still remember um, at my first book reading, the very first question someone from the audience asked was, why did no big bankers go to jail? Right. You know, and there I am stumped by the question, which is not a place you ever want to be. <laughs> and <laughs> so I decided to set my mind on trying to understand that question. And that journey led to the writing of this book. You um, at one point talk about the difference in how white collar criminals are treated compared to street criminals, which a lot of people have pointed out. But I, I think the answer is pretty simple, right? We are a lot more afraid of being smacked over the head by a street criminal than by a white collar criminal who presumably is siphoning money out of the accounts of other white collar criminals. I mean, right. These are all rich people. Um, why do you feel they should be treated more harshly? You make such a good point. I mean, this fear of face-to-face violence that's intertwined with theft is something we're all truly afraid of. Like, we're more afraid of being shot on Fifth Avenue, right, uh, by somebody than, um, you know, being one of the 200,000 people who die of a deadly virus that should have been contained. Mm -hmm. There's something truthfully more scary about being close to the person who is defrauding you or stealing from you. And yet we need to take just as seriously white collar crime because of the wider scale damage. And it is at times a kind of danger and a kind of violence. If you look at the opioid epidemic, for example, Mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the Sackler family made billions of dollars when their company, Purdue Pharma, committed crime. And I'm not using crime euphemistically or as shorthand, Purdue Pharma actually pleaded guilty in 2006 to federal charges involved in um, mislabeling their product, which is a really benign way of saying they had a multi-million dollar marketing campaign to mislead doctors and create incentives to prescribe Oxycontin, which was highly addictive, and they lied about it, to people who should never have been given those prescriptions. And they and other companies like them fed this opioid epidemic, which resulted in 200,000 people dying of overdoses, tearing families apart. Meanwhile, you know, the family behind this one company um, became one of the, the, you know, the wealthiest families in America. And then they kept selling their, their drugs. And we see where it is now. Now, recently, the states are bringing these lawsuits against the company to escape too much liability. The company has now um, filed bankruptcy. And we have the federal government, um, the Department of Justice, you know, another bite at this company is now trying to settle criminal charges through that bankruptcy. You know, you really wish this had been nipped in the bud um, ahead of time before the damage was done. Well, let's talk about that. There are a lot of outrageous stories about what these uh, white-collar criminals get away with. So how do you prevent it? Well, you can prevent things. One of the best ways to prevent um, fraud and illegality is to beef up whistleblower 
laws, protection laws. Um, one of the best whistleblower laws we have is this thing called the False Claims Act. And it's sometimes referred to as Lincoln's Law because when President Lincoln was in office, it was enacted um, because there were vendors, there were people selling really shoddy uniforms to the Union Army that were falling apart and leaving them unsafe on the battlefield. So the way this law works is it has a whistleblower provision to actually initiate a lawsuit on their own against any government contractor with a contract over a certain dollar value who is cheating the government. Really? You don't even need that's, yes. that's still in effect. It's still in effect, and billions of dollars are collected every year through this false claims law. And what happens is you don't even need to have standing. You don't need to be an employee. You don't need to be someone who's harmed by the conduct. But what you do have to do when you file the lawsuit is you have to serve notice on the Department of Justice, and then they are allowed to take over the case. And they can take over the case and turn it into a criminal case. They can take it over and turn it into a civil case. But if they do take it over, the original whistleblower is given a part of the financial recovery. Nice. And it's been, yes, it, but the, the problem is it only applies if you are, if you're, if you're suing a government contractor. I think that law could be expanded because we kind of have a patchwork of whistleblower laws um, that make it kind of confusing about, about this. And there are a lot of companies out there, let's say, you know, Purdue Pharma, or let's say some other company that's doing something that the insiders know is wrong, but they're afraid to get fired, right? The Wells Fargo yeah. of the world. And there were whistleblowers at Wells Fargo, internal whistleblowers, and they got fired. Can you imagine if instead of getting fired, they reported this, they were protected well before Wells Fargo opened up over 3 million bank accounts, um, you know, for people who did not approve them. If it had been nipped in the bud, you wouldn't have a CEO like John Stump, you know, you know, supposedly resigning in shame when the truth comes out, but actually walking away with a $135 million exit package because everyone believed he was this successful leader. Yeah. you know, so I That's think- the other frustrating thing is that, is that the CEOs who screw up seem to always walk away with plenty of money to keep their nice houses and their, their private islands. Why, how is that allowed to happen? That has to do with how our corporate governance system works, where a board of directors who are supposed to be um, looking out for the company and its shareholders are actually very beholden to the management of the company. Lots of conflicts of interest there. So they don't have a lot of incentive to rock the boat when they're getting you know $200,000 a year for just showing up at 10 meetings. Often, I have a story about this in the book. Often, I, you know, we'll use you and I as an example, Dave. I'm on the board of your company, and you're on the board of my company. Right, <laughs> right. You're laughing. This is how this is how we scratch no, each know. other's back. <laughs> I used to I used to read my. I mean, I I've, I I do invest money uh, in a retirement fund, and I try to monitor it. And I, I'll sometimes read the statements, and yes, some of these names pop up again and again. Um, and, but it's fine as long as everybody makes money. The problem, of course, is when somebody gets hurt. So you you point out that, uh, for example, in the uh, COVID relief bill, the money that was intended for small businesses, some of it managed to end up somehow in the hands of large corporations. How did that happen? 
It happened because the law was designed to allow for it, even though later after the fact, when some of these big corporations were shamed into returning the money, we had Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin saying they weren't supposed to do it, but the law was negotiated and written in such a way to allow it through these loopholes. And it's a difficult situation. You could say both parties are to blame, but if you have a situation where, where some lawmakers are holding a relief bill hostage for the loopholes that their corporate donors want them to put in, what are you going to do? How long are you going to hold it up while the rest of us are suffering? So they so knew this. So th- this was this yeah. was deliberately put into the bill. Yes. Huh. Well, why didn't that why wasn't that in the news when it, when it was being debated? I don't recall any such thing being yeah. brought up. Yeah. And, you know, there's so much going on. Um, in these bills, sometimes the, the stories come out and sometimes they don't. Um, but there's lots of situations like this where the, you know, a, a, years ago, a must pass budget bill back in December of 2014, you know, one of these continuing resolutions where the government's going to shut down if you don't pass the budget slipped into that bill was a special provision designed just for Citibank to roll back one of the most important reforms in the Dodd-Frank Act. And it was slipped in there. You know, and no one's fingerprints were on it, um, but these things actually happen. This is how, mm-hmm. you know, the thing is, there's going to be some shady dealing and some pork barreling. The question, though, is, you know, there's that great expression, pigs get fat, but hogs get slaughtered. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, the way, you know, that's that's where we are. And with, the, you know, I just feel with the Trump administration, he's ruining, you know, the 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 uh, the scam for everybody because it's so extreme. Um, and, you know, it's the point where no one can avoid the smell now from the pigsty. So aren't there times, though, when corporations do need help? Like, for example, in the in the financial debacle of 2009, saving the auto industry. You're saving a corporation, but you're also saving people's jobs. So you have to do that from time to time, don't you? Yeah, I, I fully supported the bailout um, or the TARP, the Trouble Asset Relief Program, passed at the end of the Bush administration. I think we needed to stabilize the financial system for sure. But we also needed to do more of a ground up recovery, which we didn't fully do. And we needed to do a couple things, which is hold, even if you weren't going to prosecute people, why did they stay in their jobs? Mm -hmm. And even if you weren't going to, you know, what is a new cancel culture, cancel the, the people in government who advised this was a good idea, the deregulation, why are we still listening to their advice? You know, so there's, you know, it's it's kind of gotten to the extreme where you can just fail upward, um, you know, where even, you know, where, where there's a certain echelon who's become too big to fail as people as well. Yeah. Explain to me why. And this uh, this is I, I admit is because having looked at the uh, New York Times report on Donald Trump's tax returns, it raised a question that I've had for a long time. Why do banks keep lending money to people who repeatedly lose it? What's in it for them? Okay, so we've got the Donald Trump situation, and then we have other situations. Let's let's take the, the garden variety situation. If you loan money to a business um, or a person, and they're having trouble paying it back, you might not want to take that loss. You might do this thing that's called extend and pretend. You refinance the loan, so it still looks like it's performing. Mm-hmm. You give them a new loan with a genuine hope that their finances will improve, 
that would be the charitable idea. But in some cases with the cynical view, if you're the person who's working at the bank and you're the one who originated it, you're hoping to fight another day, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you'll transfer to another division, you know, or the, you've heard of the Wall Street expression, IBG, YBG, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. <laughs> classical. I hadn't classical. heard about that. Now you have. Today I've heard you if learn. you take out a small loan, the bank owns you. If you take out a big yes. loan, you own the bank. So well, that's something that comes from John Maynard Keynes. You yeah. know, this idea that you know that you're the problem if if it's a small loan, and and the bank has got a problem if you have a big loan. Um, but you look at someone like Donald Trump, and you know the, the book that explains quite well what happened with him is a book um, written by David Enrich called Dark Towers about Deutsche Bank. Um, and why it seems to be um, that he kept getting money from them when no one else would loan to him. And even when he was banned from the bank because he had burned different divisions of the bank because some of the things he, some of the loans that they were, you know, distributing out to their clients, you know, they blew up and yet they still loaned to him. I think the full story of that hasn't come out. I think in time we're going to understand why Deutsche Bank did it. But on the surface, you had a particular loan officer, someone who was very high up in the private banking division, uh, Rosemary Rablick. And, you know, her life was improved when she could make these loans for her clients. And the, the people at the top didn't stop her because the people at the top of Deutsche Bank wanted to keep meeting their numbers. So this desire for everyone to meet the numbers at whatever cost that may hit down the road is a kind of short-termism that helps fuel this kind of bad behavior. You know, we're taught in this country that the economic system, the the more you leave it alone, the better and more productive it is, and that it rewards innovation, it rewards uh, ingenuity. But the closer you look, it seems to be, as the president himself might say, rigged rich people scratching the backs of other uh, rich people. And the the price of success is is um, to play this arcane chess game that nobody understands with shell corporations and crazy loans and stuff like that. So is there any way to reform this kind of system without having to resort to, you know, uh, uh, socialism or whatever they're calling it these days? Yes. I mean, I am somebody who is a fan of markets. I can't imagine that the system would somehow be better with, you know, elected officials making decisions of who aren't who aren't trained in a certain area, making decisions themselves about a complex pharmaceutical or, you know, what food assortment to be in a store and so on. I believe in markets, but I believe in regulated markets. I believe in having a level playing field so that the companies that cheat don't rise to the top and drown out the, you know, and squeeze out the honest ones who can't compete. And I think, you know, we've done this before. I think it means having a better balance between labor and management. I think it means making sure that we try to empower whistleblowers, that we empower investigative journalists. I think to some degree, Brandeis had it right when he said sunlight is the best disinfectant, but now we see what's going on. That's kind of the goal of my book, and I think it's time to do something about it. Jennifer Taub is a law professor at Western New England University and the author of Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime. Jennifer, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form. 
unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's morning news? You can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's morning news. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.